So, okay, I'm going to pass out uh, a syllabus for the next uh, eight or ten lessons or so. <coughs> uh, I'm, I'm not passing out a study sheet uh, today. The study sheet I gave you last week was for Genesis chapter 16, and uh, and even as I uh, was working on that study sheet last week. I was, I was really not certain how much of the chapter we were going to try to actually cover uh, today, uh, but we're only going to we're only going to get started on it maybe the first six verses or so of chapter 16. So the study sheet that you had for today actually covers the entire. Um, Uh, did I did I have those copied wrong? So did, I think did, it was the lady who was trying to leave. It was probably no. <laughs> <King copied>, uh, <laughs> the same thing on both sides. It's the same thing on both sides. Okay, well we're just going to do double duty. We're going to cover both lessons twice. So yeah, but everybody has a complete list of of the next eight lessons or so, right? I hope. Okay. So yeah, that's right. I yeah I that, actually no, it wasn't her fault. It was my fault. So the way I did it. But at least everybody knows. It would have been funnier to blame her, though. Yeah, yeah, it, it would have been. But that's one of the issues we're going to talk about today is blaming other people for our mistakes. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. So at any rate, we're just going to try and cover about the first six or so uh, verses of chapter uh, 16 and then uh, possibly the rest of the chapter next week. So the study sheet that you have from last week for today will apply for next week as well. So, let's pick it up in uh, chapter 16 and, and verse 1. And uh, we'll read down through those verses and then take a moment to go back and review last week and, uh, and then pick up the story in 16. So, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had, uh, excuse me, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she had saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Okay? Well, before we actually launch into these verses, let's go back and kind of think for a few minutes about what we talked about last week. What do you remember? Okay, okay. We see that in Abram's life, don't we? That he questions God and God doesn't appear to have any problem with that. 
but we are impressed by Abram's attitude as he does that. That it, that it is an attitude of submission and trust in the Lord. What else? There, that kicked it on. <laughs> well, Rick, having, having missed the last couple of weeks, I wondered if you covered a very intriguing verse for me, verse 16, where it says, he's talking about what's going to happen. He says, the Israelites will return, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Did you deal with that? You know, I had it in my notes. I don't remember. Did we talk about it? What did, what did I say? <laughs> I do remember I intended to talk about it. Does anybody remember what we said about it? Okay. God's patient. Okay. Oh, yeah, we did. Because we talked about why God, why God was waiting. Yes, that's right. We did get that covered. Uh, we talked about the fact that the way it says it here is that God it was that the iniquity of the Amorites uh, was yet to be completed, but the but but we understand from other scripture that the reason that God God waits on judging the wicked is in order that they could repent. The the problem is that is that oftentimes when God is waiting for us to be to respond to Him, that we use as an opportunity to continue in sin, and that's of course what the Amorites were going to do, and eventually it would reach a point where they would have to be expelled from the land. I, uh, we did get that covered last week, so. Well, it just seems like there's a. The way it's worded to me, it seems like there's a point where the iniquity spilled out. That yes. That's yeah, and I think the scripture is pretty clear on that. Yeah, in a number of places in scripture, it gets it just it, you know the same thing as we as I did mention last week. The same thing happened with Israel, mm-hmm. that God waited and waited, and they kept just using it, uh, exploiting the delay as an opportunity to continue in sin, and eventually they too were expelled from the land. So, yeah. Okay. Because it's like he wanted to know how God, in our life, He transforms situations. He doesn't just immediately yes. to build that trust and yeah. allow us to, to have an experience with a relationship with Him yeah. rather than just the doing things. Yeah. It's yeah. not really about the doing, it's about the being. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we sure see that you got another promise. Okay. Okay. Okay, great. Yeah, it would be nice to know that, wouldn't it? That would be really, real comforting to know that, that, that uh, I wasn't going to die in some great conflict or earthquake or catastrophe or something like that, but I was going to go to my grave in peace. That would be nice to know. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah, th- that's that's really kind of a step forward for Abram. He discovers that this whole land promise is really way off in the future, hundreds of years, and he's not going to see that part of the promise. So now he understands that though it has been promised to him, it's way off in the future, and he can understand that now. And understanding that, it might be easier for him to 
accept it when, when he at least sees that God has a plan. Anything else? I think so. I think so. I think they both represent the Lord. It's the Lord passing through them. But the reason that I that I conclude that it means that God is standing in Abram's place is because typically it was the vassal who would walk through the animals. Uh, if, if only one walked through, it would be the vassal who would walk through. And in this case, case, Abram stands aside and the Lord walks through, but he says, I'm making a covenant. So basically he's saying, we're making this covenant together, but it all rests upon my shoulders. So in a real sense, what he's saying there, I think, uh, to, to go along with what you said, is I think what he's saying is, is the security of this covenant rests entirely upon me. Uh, so he really is going, in one sense, he is, he, is, he is offering himself vicariously in Abram's place to be the security for the covenant. So. Yeah, and I, I was thinking that the amount of courage is the right word for God. The grace that God, when he walked through on Abraham's behalf, knowing that Abraham and his descendants are not going to keep Absolutely. the covenant, what's going to cost God. Absolutely. He's, he's walking through and saying, I'm going to be the one that's yes. cut to pieces because you guys weren't going to keep it. And I think that's the profound thing about this story, that he's saying, my body, I offer my body to be broken in order this covenant might be preserved. And that's, in fact, of course, what he ultimately does at the cross. And, and it's such a stirring illustration to me of God, what God is willing to do to preserve the relationship that he's established with us. It's just a, it's a marvelous gesture on his behalf, more than a gesture. It's a, a, a real sacrifice. Well, it's, it really is interesting to me that chapter 15 comes before chapter 16 and not because I'm really into math here. <laughs> but, but, but God establishes this covenant and, 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 and makes it very clear to Abram that the covenant rests on his shoulders, on God's shoulders, not on Abram's shoulders. And what he's saying basically is he's saying if there's a breach of hesed, if there's a breach of this covenant loyalty, I will bear the penalty in myself. I will bear the penalty. I will allow myself to be broken and cut in pieces uh, as a punishment for the breach of Hesed. Okay? And, and, and what's, what's significant about that is that, is that as soon as we move into chapter 16, we have this spectacular failure on the part of Abram and Sarai to walk by faith with God. We have this, this remarkable failure. But because God has secured the covenant, they still stand in secure relationship with God. It's just a tremendous, to me, it's a tremendous example of the principle of the security of the believer. That they are secure even in spite of the fact of the things that we're, that we're reading about today that occur. This just really remarkable failure on the part of Sarah and Abraham. And I think as we go through the passage, you'll see that it really is a pretty spectacular failure. And that as Moses records this for us and for the children of Israel as they're in the wilderness, he makes a very profound association between what Sarah and Abram did 
uh, and, and another very cataclysmic event in Scripture, and we'll see that as we go forward. Okay. Well, let's, let's do go forward then. We pick up the story then in 16.1, and it's following sometime apparently fairly recently or fairly, fairly soon after the events of chapter 15, although it doesn't tell us explicitly uh, the connection time-wise. But it says that Sarah Abram's wife had borne him no children. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me here in this whole unfolding story of Abram that began clear back at the end of chapter 11, and we picked up, we started studying about Abram in chapter 11 and chapter 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, and through this entire passage, almost nothing has been said about Sarah. Did you notice that? About the only thing we ever hear about Sarai is that she's barren. Okay, So she's just kind of backdrop up to this point in the drama. She's just kind of back there in the background and, and we really don't really know much about her. We don't know uh, much about what she's thinking or what she's feeling. We do get some indications from other places in Scripture. And one of the things that we discover about her is that she was a holy woman who hoped in God. Peter tells us that. That Sarah was a holy woman who hoped in God. So even though she's been up to this point back in the background and, and, and all the focus seems to have been upon Abram and what Abram's experiencing and what Abram's going through, it's time now to pause for a minute, uh, for a few moments, and to think about this remarkable, remarkable woman, Sarai, who has been traipsing all over the, far east, the Near East with this guy, Abram, as he keeps having all these stunning, remarkable encounters with God, and God's telling him all these wild things and promises about the future and telling him to get up and leave Haran and go to this land that I'm going to show you. And so he packs his bag and Sarai just goes along with this. And because she is, as Peter tells us, she is a holy woman and she hopes in God. And Hebrews tells us that she's a woman of great faith. And so she goes along, she goes with Abram and she supports Abram and he's traipsing all over the, uh, this so-called promised land. And, and, and every once in a while, God comes and speaks to her, or speaks to him and tells him, oh yeah, there's a little more to this promise I want you to know about. And so God speaks to him, uh, sometimes apparently uh, even uh, in, by his presence with him, God encounters. And then by visions like we saw in chapter 15, and, and you can imagine every time that Abram has one of these encounters with God or hears the voice of God or however it is that God speaks to him, you can imagine the conversation at the dinner table that evening or at the breakfast table the next morning as Abram sits down and once again tells Sarah, you know, uh, last night I had this vision <laughs> and God appeared to me and he, you know, he did, and he told me this. And, you know, and Sarah is hearing all of this and she's absorbing all of this. And through all of this now, for that's been going on now as we see in this passage for ten years at least, Sarai is hearing these things and as we understand from Hebrews and from Peter, she's receiving these things with faith and she's going, well, this is really remarkable what God is planning to do through you. Okay. So now Sarai comes to, in, in this drama, she comes to the forefront. 
And it's not really a very complimentary picture we see of her at this point. So we need to keep these other things that we know about her uh, in, in, in the in, uh, forefront in our minds because uh, we, might, we might not get a very good picture of Sarai. And I think that would be a mistake. But Sarai now comes to the forefront and, and the Scripture points out to us again at the beginning of chapter 16 the one defining thing about Sarai, which is what? Pardon? She has no children. So he reminds us again. How many times have we been reminded since chapter 11 that Sarai is barren and she has no children? I mean, it just, it just keeps coming up, doesn't it? Okay. So this has kind of become the defining characteristic of Sarai. She is Abram's wife and she has no children. Okay. Now, as a parenthetical comment, we discover that she does have a maid, right? She has a maidservant. This maidservant's name is Hagar. Okay. And what do we know about Hagar? She's from Egypt. She's an Egyptian. Okay. Well, it seems most likely, if you, if you consider the story and consider everything that's gone on, it seems most likely that Hagar has been acquired by Abram and Sarai in one of two ways. Either when, when, remember the story we studied a number of weeks ago about Abram's sojourn into Egypt and that whole uh, scenario down there, the fiasco that happened there, that when Pharaoh took Sarai uh, into, his, into his home to be his wife, okay, because of Abram's deception. So he took Sarah into his, into his home. And the possibility is that at that point, that Pharaoh would very likely or very possibly have given to Hagar or given to Sarai Hagar as a servant uh, to attend to her needs and whatever. The other possibility we do know that Pharaoh also gave as a reward to Abram for taking his uh, taking what he thought was his sister gave him a number of male and female servants. So it's also possible that that Hagar was originally given to Abram, who then subsequently, when he recovered his wife, gave uh, Hagar to his, uh, to his wife to be her maidservant. Okay. Now, when we say she's her maidservant, she's not a maid like we have today. You know, If you want a maid today, you go out and you, you know, pull out the newspaper and go look in the ads and you find somebody and you call them up and you hire them and they come over and they work for you at so much an hour. Okay, this is not the kind of arrangement we have. A maid in, the, a maid in this context, in this culture, was essentially obligated. They were, in, in one sense, a slave, but they, were, but they were not considered a slave. In other words, they had a higher status than a typical slave. Okay, And uh, so she was kind of uh, Sarai's personal attendant. She wasn't free to leave. Uh, she was required to remain there. She was obligated to do so. Uh, and, and there's all kinds of cultural issues at play here that we probably won't have time to go into. But, but she's not really free to leave. She's obligated here. She's, she's, she's in, in a, basically a position like a slave would be as far as her obligations and responsibilities, although she has really a higher status uh, uh, and a higher position uh, socially than a, than an average slave would have. Okay, but she is from Egypt, and Moses, as he records this for us, points this out to us at least a couple times that she is from Egypt. Okay, and and so obviously 
that's important to the story. That this, that this maid is a foreigner. She's Egyptian. Now, remember, this is being written for the children of Israel as they're in the wilderness after they've come out of Egypt. Okay, so it, so it may be that Moses is trying to communicate some things to the children of Israel to get them just to help them kind of see their experience in Egypt in a broader picture or a broader light. But it may also be that what Moses is trying to communicate to us is that there are repercussions. There are ongoing repercussions from Abram's sin during that sojourn in Egypt. That he went into Egypt and he, and he was deceptive. Uh, and we talked all about that story at the time and how deceptive he was and the results of all of that. And it's possible that one of the things that Mo- Moses is trying to point out to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he records this story is just to remind us that when we do the kinds of things like Abram did when he went to Egypt, when we rely upon the arm of flesh, when we walk by the flesh, that, that there are oftentimes ongoing consequences. Uh, and oftentimes we don't know those, we don't anticipate those, we don't expect them, but they happen down the road. And so here we have this foreign woman and she is in Abram's house and, and uh, she is uh, Sarai's servant. But Sarai, of course, as we've said, is barren. She has no children. Now, she is at this point 75 years of age. Okay. Now, I don't know when they got married, but you know, let's assume they got married when Abram was 20 or 30 years old. So they have now been married for 50 years or so. Okay, maybe 60 years. Okay, they've been married a long time. Uh, Abram is, uh, is uh, 86 years of age, so, so they could have been married 60 years. For 60 years, this woman has been Abram's only wife. In 60 years, she has never borne him any children. For the last 10 years of those 50 or 60 years, God on, on various occasions appears to her husband and tells, husband, her, tells her husband all these fantastic things that are going to happen. He's going to have a descendant. He's going to have descendants more numerous than the stars of the sky, uh, more numerous than the dust of the ground. Uh, he's going to inherit this land. Uh, he's, he's, he's going to take possession of this land and they're going to multiply and they're going to bless all the nations of the earth and them all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All these remarkable promises. And as Abram is hearing these promises of over a period of ten years, as he's hearing these promises and still not seeing any obvious manifestation of fulfillment of the promises... Abram remains completely faithful to Sarai, his wife. Now, what we have to understand about the culture is this whole idea of surrogacy. Okay, Is that within the culture, after a period of ten years, after you've been married ten years, if your wife had not born children to you, you were then at liberty to find an alternate plan to have children, i.e., you could go out and marry another wife 
Or you could do the surrogacy thing like uh, Sarai does here. We, we'll see another example of this when we get into the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Remember that whole, uh, that whole situation that will come up uh, in the future as we continue through our story in Genesis. This whole idea, and it was the cultural thing to do, it was actually written in some of the uh, codes of other nations. This whole process was actually written into the laws and the codes of other nations was that was that a, a woman who was unable to bear children could offer her maid or her maidservant or one of her slaves to her husband and he would go into her and have sexual relations with her. And if that maidservant or that slave bore children as a result of that union, those children would pass on to the mistress. They would pass on to the wife of the husband and they would become her children. Okay? And we see that very clearly. You'll see it very clearly, as I mentioned, when we get to the story of Rachel and Leah. You remember that Leah was having children and Rachel wasn't. They were both married to Jacob. And so Rachel was quite disturbed about that. So she brought her maid in to Jacob. And Jacob had children by Rachel's maid. And when she did, Rachel gladly received that child as her own child. It's very clear how she receives that child. It's her child. She considers it her child. Okay. Uh, then Leah gets jealous, and so she gives her maid to Jacob. So there's actually four women involved in this uh, crazy scenario, and we'll go through all the entanglements of that when we get there. It's quite a convoluted story. But, but this, is the, this is the cultural norm. This is the way things are done in the culture. Okay. So just kind of put yourself in Abram's shoes at this point. He is, he's been married for a number of years. His wife is barren. So he's sitting around the campfire, you know, with all his buddies and, you know, the other sheiks or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever kind of people Abram might hang out with. And, and you know, thought, uh, conversation turns to the children and what the kids are up to and who's off to college and whatever, you know. And here's Abram and... And he's married to Sarah. He's been married to her now 20, 30, 40 years, however long. And she's borne him no children. What do you imagine the conversation goes like around the campfire as the guys are talking? Camels <laughs> Okay. What did you do to God? Pardon? Okay, that might be the question. If they were, if they were believers in God, that might be a question they might ask. What else? Okay, that's that's very possibly a discussion. Yeah, it's her fault. And what would the solution be offered to Abram? Pardon? Take another wife or, or sleep with her maid or do something. You know, I have to believe that Abram's probably heard that suggestion a lot of times. And I think it is telling that here we are. They have now been married 50 or 60 years. And she has no children. And to this point, Abram has remained absolutely faithful to Sarai. She alone is his wife. Yes? Uh, when I was in college, I had a roommate from Iran. And it's on a little different level than they still practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You said in Iran, one of the kids asked him about multiple wives, and he said, no, you can only have one wife unless the 
first wife is barren. Yeah. And then if the first wife agrees, you can get a second. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it is quite common. When we were in uh, when we were in Russia, my wife and I, a number of years ago, uh, four, five, six years ago, whenever it was, uh, we sat down in the, in the home of a Muslim couple. She was uh, she was my husband's Russian teacher, my son's Russian teacher. Excuse me, there, folks. I don't want to weird you out here. <laughs> she was my son's Russian teacher, and it was a really neat couple. And he, they'd been uh, quite influential, actually, in that part of Russia in in areas of arts and music and stuff like that. But but the subject came up about this idea of multiple wives in the Islam in the Muslim faith, and he'd had this wife. She uh, she'd been his lover for 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 many years. They were really a cool couple, and and this, but the subject came up, and he just kind of laughingly made the comment that he didn't think he could afford two wives. He was actually quite well off apparently, but he didn't think he could afford two wives, and it was quite obvious he had no desire for any more wives. He was quite happy with the one he had. It was really a cute uh, and, a, and a neat time that we had together with him, but but the uh, the thing I cannot that I can't get away from is this idea that Abram has been so faithful to Sarai for so many years. And it's quite clear that in Abram there are certain underlying values. There's a certain underlying understanding that he has about this relationship with Sarai that has kept him all these years in spite of the cultural norm, in spite of what would be accepted culturally and expected culturally, and I think even probably in spite of the proddings and encouragement of his friends and acquaintances. You know, there's a way around this problem, Abram. You know, if you just take another wife, you know, you can keep Sarah and just take another wife. But he steadfastly refuses to succumb to the pressure of the culture and the pressure of the world and the pressure of presumed pressure of his friends and acquaintances to take this other route, this other solution to the problem. Okay. And all these many years, Sarai, though she is barren, and if this barrenness has been a, a source of conflict and faith struggle for Abram, can you imagine what it has been for Sarai? It must have been some magnitude greater for Sarai as a woman to go through this. Not only to not be able to have that personal, wonderful satisfaction of having children herself, but to realize too that this man whom she loves and who's been so devoted to her for so many years, that she's been unable to give to him the one thing that he wanted more than anything else in the world. And so Sarai, through all these years, has gone through this great crisis of faith. And then something finally, at the age of 75 in her life, triggers her to make this offer to Abram. And I have to ask myself, what happened? They've been getting these promises for the last 10 years and God's been speaking and she's a woman of faith. She's a holy woman and she hopes in God. Peter tells us and Hebrews says she's this great woman of faith and so she's been trusting God. But something happens. And finally, Sarah, can I use this word, snaps. <laughs> and she comes to Abram with this terrible suggestion. Okay. What happened? What changed in Sarah's perspective that at this point she went, the problem isn't with my husband, 
The problem's with me. And I've got to get out of the picture. Did you ever ask that question? Well, I think, I think the key is in what just happened in chapter 15. What happened in chapter 15 that might have prodded Sarai to think, I'm the problem. It's not my husband. It was a promise that uh, God gave Abraham when he said, uh, Abraham said, Eliezer of Damascus is going to be my heir. And he said, no, uh, one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. Okay, okay. This is the first time where God explicitly says to Abram, it's going to be one from your own body. And God specifically precludes the legitimate cultural solution of adoption, i.e. Eliezer. He precludes that. He says, no, it's not going to be that. It's going to be one through your own body. Now, Fast forward to the next morning after the vision is all over and Abram gets up and he comes to the breakfast table and he sits down from across from the table with his wife and takes his cup of coffee and begins to drink his cup of coffee and begins to tell Sarai about this vision he's had. And, he, and as he's describing this vision and he's all excited because God has come and given him, renewed this promise of an heir, of an heir and renewed the promise of the land and, and God walked through between the animals and Abram is like most of us guys. He's oblivious to what's going on. He's just telling this glorious, fantastic story of what's happened and how God has come to him and God has spoken to him and Sarai is sitting there listening and when... And when Abram, in all of his excitement, says to Sarai, and, and he said, it wasn't going to be Eliezer. It was going to be one from my own body. What is Sarai thinking? She's thinking, I'm barren. She's thinking, he didn't say anything about me. I'm out of the picture. Now, she isn't out of the picture. God knows she's not out of the picture. Abraham ought to know she's not out of the picture. Sarah ought to know she's not out of the picture. And I'll show you why here in a minute. But she hears this story from Abraham and she thinks, I'm out of the picture. It's so easy for us when, when we see God's hand and God's blessing on other people and we don't see it or we don't feel it in the same way, it's oftentimes it's so easy for us to think that we're out of the picture, that God's not planning to use us, that God doesn't have some purpose or plan for our lives. It's so easy for us to be jealous of the blessings that God bestows on other people, isn't it? And we see God work or move in another person's life and... and you know, this, this passage is a difficult passage. I was going to share this with you. This passage is a difficult passage for me to teach because every failure of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar in this passage is a failure I've made. Probably on numerous occasions. And so as I teach this passage, I go, man, I've done that. And I've been there. And one of the things I've done is I've made this mistake that Sarah's made is, is I've seen God bless and move and work in someone else's life and haven't seen it in my life the same way. And I go, well, maybe I'm out of the picture. 
Maybe I'm out of the picture. And so Sarai hears this story from Abram. Abram's all excited about it. And Abram's just, you know, he's floating on cloud nine because he's just had this great vision from God. And Sarai's going. I guess I, I guess I don't fit in this picture. And so at this point, she begins to think, God has promised my my husband an heir. And this needs to happen. And I'm an obstacle. So I need to somehow figure out a way so that this promise to my husband can be fulfilled. So she figures out a way. Well, it doesn't take her much figuring, does it? Because this is the cultural norm. It's actually written in the laws of other countries, other nations around them, what to do in this kind of a circumstance. So it doesn't take her long when she looks around to see in the world a solution to her problem. And so she comes and she brings this solution to Abram. And she says, here, Abram, Here's my maid. You go into her. And you'll notice what she says. She says, um, uh, in verse uh, 2, it says, uh, So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. Now that phrase there, obtain children, actually the literal literal uh, translation is, I will build my house through her. Yes, Rick. I think uh, that first statement shows something about her relationship with God. Um, I can have children if it wasn't with God. Yeah, yeah. And the fact of the matter is, nobody has children yeah. apart from God. Yeah. Because children are a gift from the Lord, aren't they? And yeah. And I want to come back to that in just a minute because there's something else going on there too, I think. But I want you to notice that what she wants to do, what she is resolved to do now, she she is resolved to build her house. And she has a solution. She has the promise of God for her husband. She thinks she's excluded from that part of the promise. So now she's going to build her house. And as I, as I was reading and studying that this week and saw that literal translation of that phrase, the verse that came to my mind was Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And Sarai is about to make a very tragic mistake. Okay. Yes. It's such a thing. I mean, it's just so common that Satan works this way, where he will whisper to us, "Well, God's forgotten you." Yeah. Like, you help God out. Yeah. You gotta help. Yeah. So what we do is we say, "Now you're wrong, and we're gonna help God." Yeah. In our Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah. But I'll tell you, uh, you know, just coming from Atlanta and living a bit from slavery, I'm a hard nut to handle. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely wrong what's happening here. And uh, but I want you going back now to uh, the part of the verse that Rick mentioned. I wanted to go back to that. Is you'll notice that 
it's a human solution. It's a worldly solution. We're going to help God out here because obviously it isn't going to work unless I help God out. But she doesn't put it in those terms. She puts this spiritual gloss on it. See? The spiritual gloss is, well, you know, clearly God isn't, you know, God has prevented me from having children. So really what she's saying is, this is God's plan. She's put a spiritual gloss over it. She's spiritualized her plan to operate in the flesh. Now, of course, I've never done a thing like that. And I'm sure none of you ever have. Okay. This very thing that Ginger talks about where we, where we think God needs our help. And so, you know, but we would never put it that way, would we? We wouldn't say God needs our help. We put a spiritual gloss on this reliance upon the arm of flesh and reliance upon the ways of the world. Okay. And this way of the world is so inculcated into our minds, into our thinking, that sometimes it's second nature to us. To do it the world's way rather than to do it God's way. Okay? But, but we oftentimes have our spiritualized version of it. We have our spiritual gloss we put over. So it really looks like we're trusting God. And it looks like we're doing what God wants. And Sarai, maybe even by this point, has deceived herself into thinking she is doing what God wants. And so she brings to Abram this suggestion. You know, Rick, I've, I've been there too. I, 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 Please clarify here. Your wife wants a clarification. Like you say, we've all done it where we've taken what we want, so-called sanctified it. But I think in my heart, you know, my motives were not, I don't think I was fooled into thinking this is what God, I think I was, this is what God wants and I'm going to figure out a way to get it. Yeah. And, some, and I think Sarah's motive, you look at her, you know, despite the fact she was called obedient and all that, I think here, you know, once she's blaming, her justification is, I'm blaming God, He prevented me. Mm-hmm. She didn't really believe it could happen probably because later on when He comes and says she's going to have a son, she, she laughs about it. Yeah. And I, I see here almost a fear, too, that, okay, Abraham's going to have, and he's all excited he's going to have a son, and I can't. He's able to dump me mm-hmm. and get somebody else. So, therefore, if I give him Hagar, I can still pin, control the situation yep. here, and I can still be, in, I can still yep. be the mama, yep. so to speak. Yep. So, it's almost selfish. I don't know if it was true or not, but I, I see that selfish motive because I, every time I've tried to go run ahead of God, it's been a selfish motive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's good. Yeah. What's ironic to me is they spent 50 or 60 years they've been worrying about this and fretting them, and there is no problem. Yeah. There's no problem there. God's already told them, okay, I'm, you're going to have a son, you know, you're going to have all this inheritance. Okay. And so they're still worrying about it. They're still asking, yeah, I've already taken care of that. It's okay. There's, there's no problem. Okay. And they go down the line a little bit, and then they're worrying about it again, and they're both yeah. <clears throat> working at it. And there ain't no problem. <laughs> there never was a problem. No. It was already settled. Yeah. And I think we all do that. Yeah. Yeah. Normal. Yeah. But it's really hard to it's so hard to see that though when we're looking at it from our perspective. I mean, it's easy for us to do it now because we're reading the story thousands of years later and we go, "Well, gee, they should have seen that." But how many times have I been in Abram's place? 
where I cannot see and I cannot see and God keeps saying, there's no problem, Rick. There's no problem. But I keep going, well, excuse me, Lord, but I think there is a problem. <laughs> yeah. and, and so this struggle is, we can relate to it so much. I've been so encouraged as we have gone studied through the life of Abram because at point after point after point, I go, oh, I can relate to that today. You know? and, and so we see it here. Well, the question then is, when Sarai comes to Abram, Abram immediately falls for it. Now, that in itself is intriguing to me because here is a guy who, in spite of all the pressure of the world and all the pressure of the culture, and I think most reason, it's most reasonable to expect even the pressure, pressure, or at least the suggestion from his peers, from his friends and his acquaintances, that he take another route to solve this problem. For many years now, he has steadfastly refused to do so. Why? Why has he for all these years refused to do so? And then when his wife comes and says, let's go this other route, he immediately caves and does it. What's going on there? Well, the question is, did Abram know what he was doing was wrong? Should he have known? Could he have known what he was doing was wrong? And I would say quite emphatically, yes, Abram knew what he was doing was wrong. And I think there are several reasons, uh, at least three that I can see of them, but that are pretty clear. Um, let me get my notes here so I make sure I get each of these. And the first is that Abram has lived, in spite of the culture around him, Abram has lived monogamously for 50 or 60 years. He has been faithful to one wife for 50 or 60 years in spite of the culture around him. It's quite clear that Abram understands that God's norm for marriage is monogamy. He knows that. He understands that. It was established in the garden when God said a man shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave to his life, to his wife <laughs> and the two shall become one. And that principle is reiterated again later in Malachi and then reiterated again and again in the New Testament, this principle of monogamy. And although God did tolerate and allow bigamy and polygamy over the years, even with some men of God like David, it was not his plan, it wasn't his purpose, it wasn't his will. Okay? And Abram obviously understands that. He knows that. He's lived with his life, lived with his wife monogamously now for many, many, many years. The second thing is that Sarai is his wife by covenant. And because she is his wife by covenant, she is a fellow heir of the grace of life. And what that means in Abram's case is that every promise to Abram is a promise to Sarai. She is a co-heir. She is a fellow heir. She's a fellow heir because she's one flesh with Abram. And until Sarai comes with this harebrained scheme, both Sarai and Abram have always felt for the last ten years that the promise pertained to Sarai. It's only here at the very end of this ten-year period that it dawns on Sarai 
Oh, I'm not included. But she is included. And they have always known she was conclude, included. And, and they were right in that assumption because she is his wife. And she is a fellow heir of the grace of life. And so the promise that's made to Abram is a promise that's made to Sarai. And up until this point, up until God says to Abram, by your body it will come, up until that point, whenever God said, you're going to have heirs, you're going to have descendants, and He shared it with Sarai, she thought she was in on it. She never came up with this suggestion until the possibility dawned on her that she wasn't in on it. But they knew, Abram knew, that she was in on it. The third thing is that you'll remember that early in that vision in chapter 15 that Abram has suggested another alternative to God. The alternative of adoption of Eliezer. And God said, no. We're not going the cultural route. We're not going, uh, we're not going any other route than you. Okay? And... And so it, was, it should have been very clear to Abram that God, it was God's intention to do a miraculous thing here that included Sarai, his wife of his youth, the one who was one flesh with him, and that that was God's intention and that was God's purpose. And it's, it's so striking to me that as steadfast as Abram has been on that for, lo, these many years, as soon as his wife suggests another plan, he succumbs. Now, there's a couple things in addition to the applications we've made in this lesson, and, and, uh, and we'll, we'll stop here. There's just a couple other applications I want to make. But in addition to the applications we've already made, there's a couple that I would want to point out. One is that, guys, sometimes we can get so excited and so thrilled about what's going on in our lives that we are completely oblivious that we have left our wives behind. And Abram, I think, in his excitement and his thrill at what God is doing in his life is oblivious to what his wife is going through. I show her, you know, she's, she knows, he knows she wants to have a baby and all that sort of thing and he's excited about, you know, but, you know, he understands that, but, you know, she's dealt with that for 50, 60 years, you know, it's no big deal to her anymore. He's out of touch with his wife. The second thing I'd want to point out would be for you women is, is, you know, us guys, we, we look like we're pretty strong, but we're not. We're really pretty weak. And we can take a lot that the world throws at us. But when our wife loses faith, it can bring us down. We need you women. We need your confidence in God. We need your trust in God. We need your faith in God. And all the whole world around us can crumble. But wives, please remember, we need you. And everything else, everything else in Abram's life was going against him on this, on this thing. And he was okay until Sarai caved. And when Sarai caved, 
Abram came. I'm not blaming Abram. I'm not blaming Sarai for Abram's sin here. I think, as I pointed out, Abram is clearly responsible for what he's done, and he knows it's wrong. Well, we'll pick up this story next week, and we'll go on. There's a lot more really profound in this passage to look at.